Hi there to all our listeners and welcome back to our third edition of the Keeping Up With The Chemos podcast from the SGO Education Committee. While we're calling it Keeping Up With The Chemos, it's actually keeping up with any and all new agents that are on the market for our gynecologic oncology cancers. And we are going over today to Zotemab Vendotin. I am Tracy Lynn Hall with Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, where I'm a gynecologic oncologist. And joining me today, we have... Hi, this is Dr. Judith Smith down the street from Dr. Hall at McGovern Medical School, where I'm an oncology clinical pharmacist. And I'm just across the street at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. This is Shannon Weston, and I'm a professor. And if you've listened to the other two podcasts, I'm just mixing it up a little bit, starting with my title <laughs> and then going to my name because we've been we've been having a lot of fun here. So I'm excited to talk about TV and how we follow these patients. Hi there. My name is Julia Canestraro. I'm the optometrist over at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and really excited to chat today about this new drug. Hi, I'm Erin Hickey-Zaholsky. I'm a clinical oncology pharmacist, uh, an assistant professor at VCU School of Pharmacy, and my practice site is in Gynog at VCU Massey Cancer Center. Great to be back. So anytime we have a new drug coming on the market, we always worry about adverse effects. Obviously, the ocular toxicities is one of the things we worry about. But Dr. Weston, can you comment on what are the most common adverse events that we see with administration? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look across the kind of largest TV 204 trial, you can see that really a lot of the most common side effects are those that we see with chemotherapy, right? So about 50% of patients had fatigue, about 40% of patients with nausea, some, you know, diffuse areas of GI stuff, stuff like diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain. Importantly, we do see alopecia with this. This is a taxane-like agent. So you want to make sure you tell your patient that she could lose her hair and and as we've mentioned in some of the other podcasts, peripheral neuropathy is an issue. And so you want to make sure that if your patient already has pre-existing peripheral neuropathy, that you're, you have it at the best place possible and you make sure she's aware. And then I think I'll, I'll let some of my colleagues talk about the more novel adverse events, but I think we've talked quite a bit about visual change as well as hemorrhage and, and vascular issues. Julie, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about some of the visual issues we see. Thank you. Absolutely. So with this drug specifically, just based on the studies, the most common ocular events were actually conjunctivitis and dry eye, followed by keratitis at 11%. So conjunctivitis, it's kind of a catch-all term, but it's a way of describing redness or irritation to the eye. You can actually have that irritation to the conjunctiva that goes along with dry eyes. So I suspect those two symptoms are kind of related. And then of course, the keratitis or the keratopathy, which is changes essentially that we see in the cornea. So we see it on the epithelial layer of the cornea. And physically, when you're looking at the eye, they look like small microcysts. We call them mechs. Uh, microcyst-like epithelial changes. And so early on in the cycle, these mechs begin uh, in the periphery of the cornea. And over time, they migrate centrally, they slough off, that's part of the normal cell cycle. And this repeats itself as the patient continues to receive treatment. So with what we tell the patient essentially is with this drug, you may experience a few side effects, the first being dryness or blurred vision. The dryness is treated with artificial tears, which is part of their protocol anyway, or their little medication list. I always recommend preservative-free tears. You can use it as many times throughout the day as you need to. The blurred vision that you may experience, that 
can fluctuate. So some days might be better than others. But I, again, I like to remind the patient that during the studies, no patient has ever lost vision. None of these changes are permanent. Everything resolves once the drug is stopped. It might take some up to a month to kind of resolve, but we get there. So those are the most common ocular adverse events. In terms of, uh, we already talked about how they resolve, you know, within 30 days, once drug is stopped, I let them know that they will come see me every three weeks prior to their next cycle to receive clearance, essentially. So we just want to make sure the cornea looks healthy. And then again, if these changes do occur, we can treat with the artificial tears. The steroid drop is used, is recommended by the drug company. Sometimes steroids can help with conjunctivitis or inflammation, and they'll stick to their the regimen that was recommended with the bromonidine vasoconstricting drops, as well as the ice packs. Thank you so much. So Erin, I know from an oncology clinical pharmacy perspective, we're all about prevention of toxicity. So what are some things that we send and educate the patient on for home management for prevention of toxicity? First is the obvious one, those eye drops, right? I talked about these a little bit in this podcast and in the previous one, but we've got that dexamethasone. That importantly needs to be started before the infusion, one drop in each eye, three times a day for the day of the infusion and two days following. And then the bermonidine, three drops in each eye before the tipdec infusion. And then those lubricant eye drops as much as four times a day while they're on tipdec for 30 days after. But what might not be so obvious are other preventative medication strategies. So in the 204 trial, nausea was reported 27% of the time. So this could qualify, as we talked about a little before, as a low risk regimen. So a pre-medication antiemetic on day one. Um, And then I always think it's really important not to leave our patients hanging um, with no PRN antiemetic at home. So we want to send them with something like prochlorperazine PRN. Excellent. Any counseling that you all do on fatigue management or prevention for your patients with this regimen, Dr. Weston? I can start. I mean, I think fatigue, it always like makes me so sad because I think for me, that's kind of toxicity that I struggle with the most and that my family, my patients struggle with the most. And I have the hardest time, you know, other than utilizing things like dose interruption and dose reductions. So, you know, we've been trying to get out in front of fatigue as much as we can. So we try to make sure the patients are active and are trying to do 30 minutes of exercise a day. We're seeing more and more great data around physical activity and outcomes, not just cancer related outcomes, but it does seem, you know, that that can combat fatigue. We incorporate supportive care consults pretty early for our patients. And depending on the physicians that they see, sometimes I do see them getting things like, you know, steroids or other, or like Ritalin or agents like Mm -hmm. that. I haven't seen a ton of success with that. So it really is about making sure they're getting good nutrition, sleep, you know, trying to manage their sleep as best they can and exercising. No, I would definitely echo that with you and hydration. The one thing that we have used, especially with also the dual benefit of helping prevent some of the neuropathy is the high dose vitamin B6, like 100 to 200 milligrams can give you the dual benefit prevention of neuropathy or progression of neuropathy, and then gives them that energy boost as well. Other things um, might be a reason for dose reductions or treatment delays. Well, I'll chime in. Certainly significant change in vision. So the eye toxicity is graded based on the CTCAE scale. So if there is a significant change in vision that is related to the cornea, we alert the oncologist immediately. And that may 
be the cause for either a dose reduction or a hold. I don't think we've talked about the actual dose or the dose reductions available, but the starting dose is two milligrams per kilogram dosed on actual body weight with a maximum weight of 100 kilograms. And your dose reductions would be 1.3 milligrams per kilogram and then 0.9 milligrams per kilogram and then discontinuation after that. I do not want to sound like a package insert, but the package insert is a great resource for, you know, what grades constitute a hold resolution and then the same dose versus a hold resolution and a dose reduction. Is there any point in which you would just stop the drug, you know, say that we can't go back on it? What do you Try think? hard not to do that. We actually had a recent patient in our clinic who we were getting really worried about. Her eye toxicity wasn't resolving kind of longer than the average we had previously seen, but we just stuck with it. And it resolved and she got back on a reduced dose and now she's cruising. So, you know, I think just patience is a virtue and and do everything you can to mitigate whatever, you know, adverse event you're, you're struggling with and your patient is struggling with. But, and I'm just thinking out loud, I think like a really like high grade bleeding toxicity, you might need to rethink that for the patient, but that might be one of the only reasons I would potentially completely discontinue. Julia, I'd be interested to hear if you have any ophthalmologic stuff that is, is like your must cancel. To date, I have not yet had to tell a patient that we've had to discontinue based on eye toxicity alone. But I guess if again, just kind of thinking of possibilities, if there was a corneal ulcer, then that would certainly be an indicate to discontinue drug, but I haven't seen that. And again, we just if the patient's willing to ride it out, you know, so are we great to know that we're able to get most patients to be able to stay on drug, even if it requires dose delays or, or reduction. Um, thank you so much for all of your time on this as well as our other podcasts, just to kind of wrap it up. Julia, we'll start with you with this one. What are your take-home points from this podcast? So take-home points, really just highlighting to the patient that there are a few main things to look out for in terms of vision changes. Mostly it's going to be dry eye sensation or fluctuating changes in vision. We have tools to help deal with those symptoms. And I let them know that these changes are not permanent and that they're set to come back every three weeks, but also they can come back anytime. So if there's anything at all about their vision that they're concerned about, they can come in anytime and we'll take a look. Great, Erin, what are your take home points? You know, you talk through all of these adverse events and realize that they do sound a little scary, but when we detail them out and put them into context, I I guess it's easy for me to say it's not a patient. I'm sure they're still scary, but really laying these out in context and what we can do to prevent, treat, and manage to keep them safely on therapy, I feel like would be incredibly helpful for a patient. Great. And Shannon? I think my colleagues have said it best. And I think you as well, Dr. Hall, you know, you can do this. The bottom line is you can do this. You can get this really excellent agent for your patients, but we just need to be as prepared as possible with the right team in place, the right counseling in place, the right pre-meds in place, and and just be ready to kind of make adjustments where needed. This has been such a great kickoff to keeping up with the chemos. We are so grateful to our panel and really hope that you will come back and join us in our next podcast series of Keeping Up with the Chemos in the fall. We'll be talking about the challenges with pembrolizumab and levetinib in the management of endometrial cancer. So thank you again for listening and tune in in October. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review 
on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On The Go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.